on his way. I'm trying um, to temper my joy with the beautiful music this morning with my request that got rejected from Julia since we were covering adoption. I asked for the theme to All in the Family to be played, and she said that that didn't work today. So take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter number three. We had a chuckle over that earlier. I don't think, Drew, you had enough time to get a heads up on that. That's probably the only reason. Galatians chapter number three. We're going to finish up uh, those few verses that we read this morning and then land there in uh, the first few verses of chapter four. Here's my uh, thought as we think about all of the many wonderful, fantastic things that people want to say to families. In around 1971, Americans changed their mind. The average size family went from four children to two. So if you had above two children, you were a, considered a larger family after 1971. Now, nothing actually changed, but the opinion changed, right? Um, society, there were changes in society and such as well. And, and families that have more than two children, a lot of times, uh, and this is not an endorsement one way or the other, but uh, we, we tend to hear some f- fun statements, like if they're getting to know me and I say, I have five children, and they go, five kids. You know, and I'm like, well, not, I don't have five babies, like at one time. We're not sticking bottles in five mouths at one time. I've got, you know, from 16 to four, and each one of them a gift from God, but you, you hear all kinds of things. Adopted, adoptive, rather, families uh, hear their own distinct set of um, comments, unsolicited comments. People kind of don't know what to say and feel like they have to say something. And um, one missions-minded, internationally known pastor writes about this, and here's what he says. People can tell that my daughter and one of my sons have been adopted. Now, he's writing this. You can obviously tell different ethnicity. He said, and when we share their stories, people say, oh, that's so nice, Now, do you have children of your own? He says, this is phrase number one, not to say to an adoptive family. He's like, as a pastor, I know better, but as a parent, I want to say, come here. I want to whisper something to you. They're all mine. They're all ours. We're all a family. Another comment they hear is, well, I just don't know if I could love an adoptive child like a biological child. And he says, there we go again, making this unnecessary distinction. I guarantee you, he writes, that the affection that my wife and I have for the children we have adopted is absolutely no different from our affection for the sons that we had naturally. They're all our children. They're not partly our family. They're all in, and we're all in. We have this need to distinguish as outsiders when we see something, don't we? But most of the families don't had the need to distinguish. It's kind of how we're wired. This can cause us problems in our thinking as Westerners when we come to a text in 2022 that talks about being adopted into the family of God. But the gospel of Jesus Christ tells the story of a spiritual adoption that blows past ethnic and racial lines and boundaries and even all boundaries that can be constructed, it blows past all of those and calls people into the family of God. We start to learn more about the fact that we are Christians adopted into the family and we see that it, impact, it impacts the way we worship and it also impacts the way we live. Now last week we fixed, finished up a big chunk of chapter three 
But I want us to start looking at, you know what, we started in verse 26. Jeremy, I can't read it like you, but I want to put it on the screen in context. We'll start with verse 23. And just to wrap our minds around one thought, the, the way we'll move through the text this morning is, is we're going to do some, some observation. I'm going to give you some thoughts for observation there. And uh, there's not a lot of interpretation. It comes up a couple of times. The application really comes toward the end with that principle of adoption. So hang with me for a few moments this morning as we explore what this looks like. Look in your Bibles at Galatians 3, verse 23. I've got it on the screen for you if you need it. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We read this last week. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. That's the gospel. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Remember, justification, major doctrine we've been focused on. Really, the whole first Two and a half, three chapters of Galatians, Paul's making the point, works don't get you there, tradition doesn't get you there, justification comes by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. (laughs) So, So here we see it. So we're not under the guardian, verse 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's a verse that's been mangled quite a bit in the last couple of decades. I'll unpack that in a few moments. And if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I don't know if you're right in your Bible, but if you do, I would underline that phrase right there because that's going to be the last thing I say to you from the text this morning before the invitation. And if you are Christ's, everything hinges on that. Everything hinges on that. If you are Christ's. Let me give you some notes to guide you through the text this morning. By verse 26, or if you're taking notes, I would write down the fullness of saving faith. The fullness of saving faith. Now, I've already given quite a bit of time. I'm going to point you back to previous sermons if you want to hear that unpacked and justification on all that. But I will give it a mention this morning with a new twist, if you don't mind. I've already said much about it, but the kind of saving faith that the Bible speaks about, remember, you don't work your way to Jesus. You don't do enough good works. You don't attend enough church. You don't sign the membership role at church. You don't um, not do bad enough to earn favor with God. There's no tradition that you can follow that gets you justified. It's the work of Jesus Christ already done on the cross. And you by faith saying, yes, Lord, I'm convicted of my sin. Lord, I see myself as a sinner in need of a savior. I'm coming to Jesus. I believe, Lord, I believe. I believe that Jesus died for me and that I need to surrender my life to him. That's, that's saving faith. Saving faith doesn't produce lazy Christians. People are like, yeah, but if you don't tell them to work, they won't do anything. That's not the kind of faith the Bible describes. I want to submit to you this morning that saving faith has probably more than three. Bear with me, though. But for the purpose of this morning, I think three dimensions to it. Now, this is the only point with subpoints for you. Three dimensions, three layers to that saving faith that, that kind of show up. Their trust, obedience, and acknowledgement. Don't hear what I'm not saying. (laughs) I'm not adding to faith alone. That's not what I'm doing. I'm talking about what's the difference between somebody having a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God giving that faith, that's a gift from God, somebody having a biblical relationship with God versus somebody saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I got faith. Yeah, 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 I'm a Christian. I'll check the box. 
How do we know? Well, I think, I think it's, there's an element of trust involved. I think there's a biblical case for that. We've made that case. You absolutely put all of your trust. You recognize you have no hope apart from Christ. That's it. Christ alone, the hope of glory. So you put all of your trust in Christ. There's an acknowledgement that comes to that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Like this is not just a, a mental assent. And then there's a desire and a willingness, watch this, to obey the Word of God. You see, when you're outside of the faith, when you just have an uh-huh kind of uh, Christian relationship, when you think, oh, I'm a Christian because I'm not a Buddhist or I'm not an atheist or I'm not an agnostic or my family goes to church, then there's no desire on your part to, to have affection or to worship or to obey the commands of Christ. Part of the evidence that you have saving faith is there's a desire to walk in obedience. But the problem is, some people think, oh, no, no, I'll just obey. You can do the Ten Commandments. Well, it's impossible for us to keep them all, isn't it? But, but if you try to endeavor to keep all of the law, thinking that that's enough to earn your way to heaven, it's not going to happen. You've got to acknowledge your need as a, as a sinner. You've got to trust Him as your Savior. In the same way, I think the church is full of folks who just acknowledge but don't have trust and don't walk in obedience. What do I mean by that? I think it's the greatest danger for churches like Grace Covenant Church. I think there are people that are comfortable in pews and watching online week after week that have simply kind of said, uh-huh, to the fact that Jesus is God and just confessing that with their mouth is enough. Society may convince you that Christianity is a matter of event attendance or a matter of preference in this pluralistic, relativistic age. Do you prefer this faith? Do you prefer that faith? As if by some mental assent, we can pass from death to life. But you cannot. That's not what saving faith is. Saving faith is faith that causes us, they're kind of results, watch, to trust Christ fully, to want to obey Him, and to acknowledge Him as our treasure. Saving faith. You might carefully add to that that your affections change as well. You start preferring you less and Christ more. What a blessing to be saved and to know that you've been changed by God. Well, we move to verse 27 and see that we celebrate this with baptism. Verse 27, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. In baptism, we're not only claiming new life, but we're claiming we're proclaiming death to everything else. We were buried in the name of Jesus. Spurgeon writes, if baptism had any right meaning to you, you professed yourself henceforth dead to everything but Christ. Abraham expressed this through circumcision. It began with circumcision and it ended with him going up to offer Isaac, his only son, as a sacrifice, walking in obedience to God. Well, we're free from that covenant, and here's what God does for us. Ours begins with baptism. We celebrate ours, we mark ours in time with baptism, and ours ends with us offering our lives as a living sacrifice. Now, before we put the verse on the screen, you know the verse, Romans 12, 1, 
Paul says, I'm going King James, I think, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, right? That's how I learned it. By the mercies of God, right? You feel like buttoning your coat when you quote King James. But by the mercies of God. So, so I beseech you, therefore, that you, you offer your lives, you lay down your lives, you present your lives to God, a living sacrifice. Let me show you to the Amplified. I like some of the words, they explode here. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, I beg of you in full view of all of the mercies of God to make a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice. Here's the next part of the verse. Holy, that means devoted to God, set apart, that's what consecrated means. Well-pleasing to God. Listen, this is your rational act of service. This is an intelligent act of service. And this is the gateway to spiritual worship. It's not just singing on pitch or standing at the right moment or following the right cues. It's saying, Lord, here I am. I surrender all. It starts with baptism, not your salvation, of course, but the declaration publicly that you belong to Jesus starts with baptism. That by that, you say, I'm dead to everything else in this world. I'm alive to Christ. And in your life to Christ, you lay down your life for him. Well, let's move on. Verse 28, I would make the note and say our new identity he talks about here. And here's that mangled verse that's, well, it's not a mangled verse, but it's been mangled, the application has in recent decades. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this is a good example of when you take a verse out of context, uh, it looks like it means something it doesn't mean, but the verse has one meaning, many applications. This is not saying that this was the end of the identity of the Jewish people as Jewish people, right? Because that didn't happen. Or Greek people as Greek people. That it was the end of slavery. That it was the end of freedom. That it was the end of males. And that it was the end of females. And yet, we have some, I'm not sure how we can accurately apply the word, apply the word progressive. <laughs> but we have some liberal folks that look at this and say, oh, here you go. This is part of the, uh, the, the gender discussion that's going on today. It's not. This has nothing to do with any of that. What this is saying is that national identities are still intact, but they're not primary in the body of Christ. Occupational roles are still intact, but they're not primary. Men are still men, and women, thank God, are still women, but that is not primary to our relationship with God. The system of faith that Christ has done for us, you've heard old-time pastors say, uh, it, it, there's level ground at the foot of the cross. The rich man doesn't get there first. The poor man doesn't get there first, right? The, the one with this skin color doesn't get there before that skin color. The slave doesn't get there before the free man. There, there's none of that at the foot of the cross. Everybody comes, whosoever will. And once we are in Christ, we have a relationship with God that's not based on who we are or how we're known in this world or what we do in this world. Christ obliterates all that. This verse didn't free the slaves. They were still slaves after they were in Christ. It didn't blur the gender roles in any way or give women authority to lead in the local church. It doesn't eliminate cultural differences that were evident in that time. We're still who we are known as we're known, doing what we do, but we have a relationship 
with God that says we're all of equal value to the Father. Everybody's of equal value to the Father. God loves you. Not based on your status, not based on your um, whatever the world would put on you as a label. God loves you. And in spite of who we are and what we do, we have a relationship with one another. Look around this room. We have folks from all different stratas of the socioeconomic sphere. Folks from this part of town and that part of town and outside of town and this commute and that commute. Folks doing this in life and retired in life. Where else would we gather together like this and open our mouths and sing songs together and pray together? That's kind of weird for it to be a social construct. It doesn't make any sense because it's not a social construct. This thing was birthed by God. That's what the church is. When God picked you up out of the miry clay and set your feet on a rock and established your going, he didn't leave you alone. He called you into a family, a family of God. What an incredible promise that we have. Well, the Bible tells us that there are other dimensions to our status. Verse 29 tells us we belong to Christ. We're Abraham's offspring, and we're now heirs to the promise. Chapter 4, we turn the corner. How is it possible, if you think with me, how is it possible that the rebellious human race that said no to God, that sinned the first chance they had in the garden, that has been on a spiral downward since culture began, sometimes at a snail's pace, other times at breakneck speed, how is it possible that, that we would uh, come to know the Lord? Well, look at verse 3. It talks about our plight in chapter 4. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We were in bondage. We were held captive to a broken world, to broken principles, to broken systems. We had no way out of this condition as humanity. I mean, we were messing it up every chance we get. We would stumble, bumble, and fumble every time, every time. And it seemed like all hope was lost. And it seemed like the night was getting darker. And then verse 4 happens. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Church family, I've come to encourage you this morning. How did all this change? How did the world change course? Because of a divine interruption. This divine interruption brought hope where there was no hope. This divine interruption brought the prospect of real, true, lasting freedom that had nothing to do with our roles or our status in this world. This rich act of mercy that invaded our time and our space showed us what love looked like with flesh on. <laughs> the word became flesh, virgin born, just at the right time, lived a sinless life to rescue us, redeem us, ransom us from ourselves, from the snare of the enemy, from hell, eternally separated from God. And this hope, this freedom, this mercy, this love, this truth has a name. And his name is, say it with me, church, Jesus. Jesus. That's how we have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. If these verses talk about uh, how that came about, I want to take the last few moments of our time together and just explore 
some of the dimensions of our relationship as adopted children of God. I appreciate how John Stott wrote so eloquently of this in his wonderful work, Knowing God. He challenges us to think carefully about the matter of adoption. I want you to look at this statement. I'm going to leave it up for just a moment. He says that adoption, adoption, is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Take a moment and think about that. The highest privilege? Now, this is just a man, right? That's not scripture I have on the screen, but I, I want to give you his reasoning behind that to give you just a peek into how rich it is that God says he adopts us. He says that it's a higher privilege than even justification. Now, he emphatically underscores justification as primary and fundamental. It's the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel. There's no question there. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our greatest need, our spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment and wrath, and only God can change that verdict. And God, seeing us as our guilt gnaws at us and makes us restless and miserable in our lucid moments, even afraid of God, God steps in and rescues us from that world of no peace because he brings us peace with himself. We need forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a relationship with him. That's justification. Seminal importance not diminished in any way. But he contends that adoption is a bit richer as you move beyond it because it shows that God loves us in a very distinct and powerful way. It points back to the Old Testament word that Pastor D and I love so much. He almost got a bumper sticker that said it. I would pay for it. Hesed. It's a funky word. It's not a word we'd say, but it's this never-ending, always chasing after us kind of unstoppable love that God has. Well, do we have Bible for this? Well, let's think about some of the most famous and powerful verses related to the fact that we're justified and see if we can see where maybe Stott's coming from. Here's one, John 3, 16. For God so hmm, loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, that would mean be justified and have everlasting life. How about Romans 5, 8? But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, wow, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We read it this morning, 1 John 3, 1. But see what kind of Love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The doctrine of justification, think about it, the picture is legal. Are you with me? The picture there is a legal picture. We stand before a judge who's going to make a pronouncement. But in adoption, the judge not only declares that we're not guilty, watch this, he comes down off the bench to where we're standing, wraps his arms around us, whispers, I love you. Come home and be a part of my family. That's the kind of love God has for us. That's why 
he says he's calling us into the family of God. That's the process of adoption. Let's look finally at the privilege of adoption in verse six, and then we have verse seven following. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Bible is not describing here, nor does it describe anywhere in Scripture, a Christianity that goes like this. You know what? I'm saved because I said a prayer one time however many years ago and leave me alone and get out of my life. <laughs> That's just not how any of this works. That's not saving faith. Remember, saving faith is, is textured. It has some dimension to it. No ma'am. Children aren't a part of a family because they've memorized the details of their birth certificate. Right? If you ask one of my children, how do you know you're a part of the Miller family, they're not going to go drudge up their birth certificate and show it to you and say there. They're going to talk about family life. The fact that we're in relationship with each other, the fact that they know me as their father, they know their brothers as their brothers, their sister as their sister, their mom as their mom. We're in a relationship together. And God gave us the Holy Spirit, a person who lives in the believer. The person of the Holy Spirit dwells in the life of the believer. The person of the Holy Spirit unites all of Christ into all of the body of Christ into one family. And he's the source of all power. He's the source of all meaningful service. And he's the source of all worship that reaches the throne of heaven. We need the Holy Spirit. And he's a person, not a force. He mentions the Holy Spirit here and then he mentions the fact that God is our Father. These are some of the privileges of adoption. God is our Father. When, when our kids are scared, they crawl up into their daddy's arms and they say, Dad, maybe I can help them when they're scared. Maybe I can't. Maybe I can solve the problem. Maybe I can't. Maybe I can rescue them. Maybe I can't. I'm only human. But when we cry, Abba, Father, to the God that never slumbers or sleeps. He's there. <laughs> He's there. He's there. He's there. When our world is falling apart, God is still on the throne. When the report from the doctor is terrifying, He's still there. When the dread you never imagined has come knocking at your door, God is still there and He's still in charge and He still has all power and all authority. Call on your heavenly Father. Cast all your cares, all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he's big? Yeah, but no. Because he's God? Yeah, but no. Why? Because he cares for you. He loves you. He's your father. I had the privilege of working closely with uh, Will Graham for a few years, son of Franklin Graham, son of Billy Graham. And when college buddies or ministry partners would find out and, and get to spend some time with Will, they would often ask when Billy Graham was alive, they'd say, hey, Will, and they do this thing. They'd go like, so um, you think, uh, think maybe you could take me over, Montreat? We could spend some time with Billy Graham? And Will loves telling the story. Will would say, no, I would always respond, I can't do that. We're a Christian family. And they would go, What? And he would grin half. He does that crooked smile he does so well. And he would grin. And he's like, the only way to the Father is through the Son. You'll have to talk to Franklin to get to Billy. <laughs> now, I can introduce you to Franklin, but I can't take you to Billy's. 
Listen, we have been justified because of the work of the Son, but the Father has invited us into a relationship through the spirit of adoption. Julia, if you'll take your place, I'll finish this last point and then we'll have a moment to reflect. The last point this morning is the promise that we have as heirs. In verse seven, the Bible says, we're no longer a slave, thank God. We're a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. What a passage, what a savior, what a father. We're no longer a slave to sin, and we're no longer a slave to tradition or a slave to the law. We're not trying to work our way into God's noticing us somehow. No, we are sons and daughters. We are children of God. We are guaranteed an inheritance that won't go to probate. It's not contestable. It's ours, and it's forever settled in heaven. Here are just some of the terms of what God has for us as heirs. Follow along with me as I share a couple with you. In Galatians alone, he says that we are heirs to the kingdom of God. We are heirs to eternal life. We are heirs to a new creation. In Romans, the Bible tells us that we will inherit the world. In the book of Hebrews, we are told that our inheritance includes the city that is to come, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a better country that is a heavenly one. The book of Revelation caps it off and describes this vision of the inheritance of the people of God as a new heaven and a new earth, a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We are co-heirs with Christ to what the Father has because we have been justified, but we have been adopted into his family. The old songwriter said, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Join heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod for I'm part of the family of God. Here's that hinge point, ready? And if you are Christ's, everything hinges on that. If you are Christ this morning, wow. I hope that you've been encouraged to see just how great a love the Father has for you. He not only saved you from the wrath to come, but he's come down off the bench as judge, wrapped his arms around you, and wants to take you home with him for all eternity. That's a pretty cool dad. For those of you who are not in Christ this morning, see how great the Father's love that while you were still a sinner, Jesus Christ paid the price for you to become a part of the family of God. I pray that you would see your need to be forgiven of your sins. I pray that you would see that you were made to be a part of this family. Come to Jesus on his terms. Be cleansed. Be filled. Be made new. Be adopted. Be his. Let's pray. Thank you.
Father, we thank you so much for this time that we have this morning, and we bless you for your faithfulness. Thank you, not only that you forgave us, Lord, but you love us like a father whose love is perfect, and there's no earthly father that can love like that. Thank you for calling us into your family, Lord, by your grace, by your mercy. Thank you for calling us into the Grace Covenant family, even this morning, for our guests that are just here visiting, Lord. Thank you that they've gotten to see the family of God. We love you. We bless you in Christ's name. Amen.